So hello and welcome to In Conversation with the Lancet HIV's podcast. I'm Philippa Harris, the Deputy Editor, and I'm talking with Sarah Calabrese from the George Washington University in the US. Sarah and her colleagues Viewpoint, Prioritising Pleasure and Correcting Misinformation in the Era of You Equals You, is published in the March issue. I'm so I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast is aware of You Equals You, but just in case, um, You Equals You stands for Undetectable Equals Untransmissible, which is a quick way of saying that people living with HIV with an undetectable viral load can't transmit the virus to sexual partners. So before I speak to Sarah, I just wanted to highlight some more of the March issue content, which uh, some really great stuff there, which includes a trial investigating whether SMS messaging can help young women with PrEP adherence. And there's also a study looking at the impact of COVID lockdown on HIV care in South Africa. So I hope you enjoy the issue. But in the meantime, let's talk to Sarah. So hi, Sarah. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. I am happy to be here and I appreciate you drawing attention to this topic. So one of the first lines in the summary of your viewpoint states that long-standing misguided fear about HIV transmission persists. Consequently, so does the policing of sexual expression and the penalization of pleasure faced by people with HIV. So do you want to start just by discussing where this fear stems from and what the consequences are? Yeah, sure. So a lot of the fear surrounding HIV is rooted in past conceptions of the disease and how it is transmitted. So decades ago, before highly effective treatments were available, HIV had very immediate and dire consequences. For most people, contracting the virus meant serious illness and death within the next few years. And that is very different from the illness today, where many people with HIV have access to effective treatment that enables them to have fairly normal lifespans. Nonetheless, the fear associated with early conceptions of HIV still lingers. Also, with respect to the spread of HIV, for decades, people have been told that HIV spreads through sex and other forms of bodily fluid exchange and that sex without condoms is a transmission risk. And it's really only in the past few years that we've accumulated definitive evidence that um, that's not always the case, right? That when people with HIV who have sustained undetectable viral loads have sex, there's no uh, sexual transmission risk, the the concept of U equals U. But a lot of people uh, are familiar with the old paradigm and still don't know about or fully believe the latest HIV science. You'd also asked about the consequences. And so the consequences are that people with HIV have limited their sexual activity to avoid transmitting HIV. HIV to others, for example, refraining from condomless sex, or in some cases, avoiding sex with HIV negative partners altogether. And they've also faced stigma and other social and structural penalties because of misguided fear about what HIV is and how it spreads. And I'm thinking specifically about HIV criminalization laws and restrictions. Um, So those are some of the consequences. And when we're thinking about consequences, I, I think it's also important to point out that because HIV disproportionately affects gay, bisexual, and men who have sex with men, racial and ethnic minorities, and other marginalized populations, that these groups disproportionately suffer these unwarranted penalties associated with outdated HIV fears. I mean, I mentioned this earlier before we started recording, but I think 
sexual expression and sexual pleasure are perhaps things that medical journals don't give the sort of um, prominence to that perhaps we should do. So, so why are they so important for people, you know, living with HIV and, and people in general, I guess? And what are the consequences when people are told that they should limit their sexual expression? Yeah, so I, I think that you kind of alluded to this, but sexual expression and pleasure are important for people who have HIV because sexual pleasure and sexual expression are important for all people, regardless of HIV status, right? Sexuality is part of human nature and having the autonomy to express one's sexuality and engage in sex, consensual sex, is a human right. So telling people with HIV that they should limit their sexual activity, well, one of the consequences is it leads to pleasure deprivation. So people with HIV um, may avoid pleasurable activities with others, and others may avoid pleasurable activities with them. And those two things combined limit um, not just opportunities for pleasure, but also for relationships. And when people with HIV do engage in sex with someone who's HIV negative, or conversely, when someone who's HIV negative engages in sex with somebody living with HIV, oftentimes anxiety about the transmission risk can detract from the quality of the sexual experience. People with HIV can also experience feelings of um, guilt or other negative emotions when engaging in sexual activity as a result of existing social disapproval associated with this notion of people with HIV sexually expressing themselves. Knowing that society disapproves of this can influence their experience um, in acting sexual expression. And you talked about, you know, you equals you, and, and obviously that means that people with an unsustained, unprotectable viral load you know, can't transmit HIV to their sexual partners. So how do you think that's impacted the way that people living with HIV can, can express themselves sexually? Well, a lot of people with HIV find you equals you to be very empowering and liberating with respect to sexual expression. It can alleviate anxiety during sex or reservations about having sex with someone who has a different HIV status. And in doing so, it opens up possibilities. It can also restore a sense of normalcy by enabling them to safely return to the sex life that they knew pre-diagnosis or, or something similar to the sex life they knew pre-diagnosis. Some gay men have also suggested that having sex with men is an affirmation of their identity as gay men. So to the extent that U equals U restores comfort expressing their sexuality, it also provides an opportunity for identity affirmation. And beyond that, U equals U helps to reduce stigma and potential rejection from partners. Some HIV negative people are open to having sex with people with HIV who have undetectable viral loads, but um, wouldn't be open to having sex with people with detectable viral loads. And I, I think it's... Um, Kind of a quick side here, it's important to note that not all people with HIV have access to the benefits of U equals U. Uh, that is, not all are able to access effective treatment and attain an undetectable status. So even though U equals U on the whole is very beneficial for many people and it can be liberating and it can be empowering, it doesn't necessarily translate to liberation and freedom and destigmatization for all people with HIV. That's an important point. And so I think one of the sort of the main, main arguments in your viewpoint is that healthcare professionals should be talking to people a lot more about U equals U. And, and 
And why, why at the moment do you think some healthcare professionals are uncomfortable with the messaging? Yeah, so there's a number of reasons that um, have been identified, including disbelief in the science of U equals U, even though it is robust, and also general discomfort discussing sex with patients. Talking about U equals U naturally involves talking about sex. The reason that we really delve into in our viewpoint is providers' concern about patients changing their sexual behavior if informed about U equals U. So some providers worry that patients will have more sexual partners or stop using condoms, and providers see that as a problem. Some worry that behavioral changes could result in undesirable health consequences, such as unwanted pregnancy or other STIs. Um, However, of course, this is not an ethical reason for withholding information. According to most schools of thought, Caring for a patient is not about withholding information to prevent adverse health consequences from occurring. It's about helping patients make informed decisions about their health and treating adverse health consequences if and when they occur. The other thing I would say about this, I would suggest that withholding information about U equals U is not always just about protecting patients' health. In one of the articles that we cite in our viewpoint, a writer is quoted as saying that they don't tell HIV patients about U equals U because, quote unquote, some will get loose. And that kind of moralistic language says to me that personal values and biases may be affecting clinical judgment as well. And are there any regions or types of healthcare providers where, where perhaps you see a reluctance to discuss U equals U more? That's a good question. And as far as regional differences uh, in terms of providers' kind of comfort or willingness to discuss U equals U, data are fairly limited. There was a recent study that came out by Okali and colleagues, which we cite in our viewpoint, and uh, they surveyed people with HIV from 25 different countries and found that the rates of a provider ever having told them about U equals U, which can be kind of considered an imperfect proxy for provider comfort or willingness to discuss U equals U, it varied quite a bit across countries. So it was highest in Switzerland and Austria and Australia, where 80 to 90 percent of patients reported a provider having told them about U equals U. And it was lowest in Russia, China, and South Korea, where less than 50 percent reported having been told about U equals U by their provider. So this, this study offers sort of very important preliminary insight into the potential for regional differences in provider comfort or practices related to U equals U. But because it didn't involve a direct measure of provider comfort or willingness, and because samples were small and non-representative, further work is really needed before we could say anything definitive about regional differences. You'd also asked about differences by type of health professionals. There's some early data to suggest that infectious disease specialists are more likely to communicate about U equals U with their HIV patients than primary care providers, and that physicians may be discussing it slightly more often with patients than nurses and nurse practitioners. But this is also an area that really needs more research, and the evidence to date is quite limited. And I, I suspect the evidence might be a bit limited here as well, but I wonder, you know, you highlighted that lots of the, the people that are disproportionately affected by HIV, you know, are, are often from sort of marginalized groups. 
do you think that can affect healthcare providers' sort of willingness to discuss you with you with people? You know, one of the groups uh, most affected by HIV is uh, men who have sex with men. And providers in general are pretty uncomfortable, or many are not all that comfortable talking about sex with with patients. And this is particularly the case talking about sex with sexual and gender minority patients. And the fact that providers are uncomfortable talking about sex with their patients in general, it's pretty understandable if they don't have the training, right? I mean, in society, in many societies throughout the world, sex is a pretty taboo topic and we're not used to talking about it with people we don't know very well. Expecting providers to naturally feel comfortable talking about it with patients, particularly if they think their patients may be uncomfortable talking about it with them, is unrealistic. Providers need to receive dedicated training on sexual health communication, and particularly as it relates to communicating about sex with sexual and gender minority patients. That kind of training is needed not only to enhance providers' comfort, but also to uh, enhance patients' comfort. And and what I mean by that is providers' um, sensitivity in terms of using the right language and asking the right questions. So you you highlight training there as as one way of of making health professionals better at discussing with equals you with people. And are there particular types of training or or any other approaches um, that you think kind of really, really help with that? This hasn't been systematically evaluated, but... Early research by Wilberg and colleagues suggests that in a sample of U.S. providers, they found messaging that underscored the benefits of U equals U knowledge to patients and to public health to be especially motivating. So if we think about the the benefits to patients, U equals U awareness aligns with HIV treatment goals. So as it stands, many patients are already adherent to their HIV medication and engaged in medical care for their own health, but knowing the implications that U equals U has for the safety and well-being of others can reinforce patients' existing self-care. And then for those who are living with HIV and are not already engaged in treatment or are not already perfectly adherent to their medication, knowledge of U equals U can incentivize care and incentivize treatment. So in that sense, there's uh, quite a bit of benefit to the patient to informing them about U equals U. Beyond these individual level benefits, U equals U can also have important implications for society in terms of reducing HIV stigma and calling into question these unfounded policies and penalties that exist against people with HIV. And going beyond U equals U, are there other sort of aspects of HIV care or or outcomes that healthcare professionals find difficult to discuss with patients and, you know, things that you'd like to see improve? Yeah, so I think that this goes back to the issue of, of sex more generally. So, you know, sexual health is fundamental to people's overall health and well-being. It doesn't just involve HIV prevention and treatment, but it also involves other sexually transmitted infections, developmental changes, function and dysfunction, pleasure, intimacy, reproductive goals, right? This is a pretty broad topic. And um, I think it's one that isn't discussed enough or attended to enough uh, in healthcare. And so I I think when you're, you're asking about kind of what providers find difficult and where we need to enhance training, it would really be in the domain of uh, sexual health. 
Okay, well, thank you for that. That was fascinating. Um, so thank you so much for speaking to us. Um, thank you for everyone for listening. And so this is normally the part of the podcast where I highlight some of our related content in the journal that you might be interested in. But as I mentioned earlier, I think sexual pleasure and expression are perhaps underrepresented in, in the medical journals. And so I hope the viewpoint of this podcast and um, particularly interesting this month, it's been you know great to speak to you, Sarah. And so thank you once again for joining us. And we hope you'll be back next month when we continue the conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me.